We've been talking for the last few weeks about what I call, and I'm not the first to call it this, the upside-down kingdom. You and I live in a world that operates by rules. Everything has rules. There are written rules, which, um, which there are written in the statute books of the state and the, and the, the resolves of the town you live in or um, in our federal government. And there are more and more rules and, and more and more complicated rules. But there are unwritten rules that we, our world operates by. Wherever you work, there are some unwritten rules. Certain people you can talk to certain ways. Certain people, maybe your boss has a door. You, you know, he said, well, you can come in and talk to me, but nobody ever does. And you just understand, I really can't do that. Whatever it is. We all understand. We, in our homes, we have unwritten rules. So some stranger comes into your house, and they realize there may be things nobody touches, nobody talks about. There are some, there are some subjects in families we just don't talk about. Those are unwritten rules. But they're there. We're all aware of them. Whether we could consciously list them or not, I don't know. But we're aware of them and we operate by them. Well, God's kingdom operates on rules. And as we've shared before, God is the creator. He's the only creator. There's no one else that can create. All we can do is take things that God's created and rearrange them, change them chemically, physically, or do something with them, but we can't take nothing and make it into something. Therefore, rules come from God also. In fact, it tells us that in Romans 13 and several other places that authority comes from God. Now, God's not backing every authority that there is out there, but the idea of authority itself comes from God. So rules come from God. God's kingdom operates on rules. And several months ago, we've talked about what God's kingdom was like before, before Satan came in. And it was paradise. It was a place of blessing, a place of, of where everything, the environment, the, 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 everything worked together in harmony to support what that man and that woman were given responsibility to do. And so God had, it was a paradise. They were in perfect communion with God. They weren't conscious of themselves. And then Satan comes in in chapter 3 of Genesis and perverts it, and what he basically tries to get them to do, and succeeds in getting them to do, is to take things into their own hands to begin to judge for themselves what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And the moment they do that, these rules that they were operating by in the kingdom of God now become perverted. So Satan doesn't have his rules. Satan's kingdom doesn't operate by rules Satan created. This is so important to understand. Satan's kingdom operates on rules that he took from God and turn them upside down. That's why we call it an upside down kingdom. Now it's important to understand that because these are the rules we were indoctrinated with. These are the rules that we've grown up in our home. These are the rules that our, our society operates by. These are the rules that, that most churches operate by because we're just so used to doing this. And because of that, these rules seem normal to us. So we be, we get, we're saved, we begin to go to church, we begin to open our Bible and see that God has principles in his kingdom, but they look foreign to us. And so we kind of look at them and say, well, okay, that's, you know, that's what we do in church, but in real life, this is how things operate. And this is why I wanted, we've taken this time for us to all understand, no, that's not what the reality is. The reality is that these rules, the rules of God's kingdom are the truth. Whether you agree with gravity or not, it's the truth. All right? These rules that we've operated by so much are the perversion 
of that. If we don't understand that, because this is all headed somewhere. When we get to the last rule we're going to talk about, which is so important for your God blessing you, God you're maturing you, and everything in your life. It's the cardinal rule under which the kingdom of God operates. And for order to get there, if we just started with that, we'd say, well, that's what God requires. But I want you to understand, no, that's what reality is. That's what truth is. What we are having to unlearn and overcome is a perversion of that. And that's why the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we're transformed, we're changed by the renewing of our mind. That just means learning to think along the lines of God's principles, which are the truth, and no longer operating under the principles which, by which we've been in, in which we've been indoctrinated. So that's the background to all of this. We've already covered a number of these rules, and we're going to attempt to get rid of, get get rid of, why? We're going to attempt to go through a couple more this morning. And one of the rules was, the first one was, in order to get to the top, this is one of the rules the rules operates by, you have to climb over others. In other words, success is getting to the top. And in order to do that, you've got to get other people out of your way because there's only room for one at the top. When I was a kid, we called it king of the hill. And the problem is, once you, if, you, if you got there, you now had to defend it from everybody else because everybody else wanted that top position. So in the world system, success means getting to the top. And everything that we're trained to do and everything we're still... There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong as long as it's based on the principles of God. But we saw in the kingdom of God, the top position is at the bottom. And that's how... But see, we look at that's upside down. No, no, that's the truth. What's upside down is success is getting to the top. And Jesus is the greatest example of that. Here's the word that came, became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came to serve, not to be served. And the ultimate service he gave was to give his life up, die on that cross, so that you and I could become sons and daughters of the living God. The second principle that we looked at is that under the world system, growing up means becoming more sophisticated and more, and, and that means all kinds of different things to different people. But we saw that, 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 that Jesus told, said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to become like a child. Not childish, childlike. And we went on to see that childlikeness in the kingdom of God means, uh, means having humility. But humility is not, oh, you know, I'm just a piece of trash. I'm, no, humility means I recognize who I am apart from God on my own, what I can do on my own apart from God. And it also means without any kind of holding anything back from him. And we looked last time at King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Here's the king, the, 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 the most powerful man in Israel, appointed by God, took off his royal robes, left them in the castle, left them in the palace. Because under the world's idea of, of being mature, he would have stayed in the palace and he would wait them to bring the ark to him. But David didn't care what everybody else thought about him. See, sophistication is when I'm concerned of what everybody thinks about me, how I want them to see me. Childlikeness is when I'm concerned about how God sees me and how I see God. David wasn't concerned what the people thought. He knew who the God was that put him there. And so he took his kingly robe off and his crown off and he went out in the clothes of common people and he was so excited that he would dance before the Lord all the way back bringing this ark and we talked about the long process that was and then we looked at his wife 
Michael, Saul's daughter, looking out of the window, ashamed of her husband, ashamed of the king. And when he got back to the palace, boy, she read him up one side and down the other. You know, you shamed Israel. You acted shamelessly. And he wasn't moved by that. He said, I wasn't dancing before you. I wasn't dancing before. See, I wasn't concerned with what the people thought. Now, see, she was taught the rules by her father, King Saul. And if you study the story of Saul, study, yeah, study the story of Saul, you'll find out Saul led the people based on what the last popular poll said. That's one of my concerns with our political leaders today. They govern based on polls, which means we're governing. Instead of having leaders, the leaders are following the people. And so that's what Saul was like. So she was concerned with how he looked in the eyes of the people. David was only concerned with how he looked in the eyes of his God, who had saved him, redeemed him, put him in the palace. And so he acted in, what, in her eyes like a child. But in God's eyes, it pleased him. Now that's not childishness, it's childlikeness. Then we end, ended last time by the next principle, and that's why I want to pick up here. The next principle rule that we were indoctrinated in this is when things don't go right, when things don't go the way we think they ought to or the way we want to, we have every right to complain. I mean, that's, 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 that's a human right. That's, we, we, we've been given our humanity. I'm just, and this is what exactly what we say. I'm just being human. I'm just being real. I'm just being human. I thought you were saved. You need to get saved if you're just being human. Because you're not just a human if you're saved. Don't we call ourselves children of God? That we're not just human. Oh yes, I live in a human body and I have human emotions. Jesus had human emotions. But those emotions didn't control him. The storms of life didn't throw him off. He had to go through them, literal storms. But they, in fact, he slept through one of them. That's how concerned he was. But see, when we think the rules were indoctrinated, well, but I, have every, but I have every right to be upset. I have every right to complain. I have every right to be angry. Where'd you get the right? Who gave it to you? Well, I'm just a person. I'm a human. No, you got saved. You changed kingdoms. You're now over in this kingdom. This kingdom operates by different rules, the real rules. And then we looked at what these rules say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Is that where I told you to turn? Good. Verse uh, 16. Rejoice when things are going well. Rejoice when everybody likes you. Rejoice when you feel well. Rejoice when the stock market's up. Rejoice when, I don't know, the sun's out. That's not what it says, is it? See, that's what this kingdom operates by. This kingdom, our feelings are determined by the circumstances that are around us for the moment. But have you ever noticed as the circumstances change, our feelings change, and we believe that we're entitled to it because we're just human. That's the principle, the perverted principle of the rule, of the world. But the principle of the kingdom of God 
is rejoice always. Well, but pastor, you understand what I'm going through. I'm telling you, this is how the kingdom of God operates. Why can I rejoice always? Because I'm in this kingdom. See, when I go around complaining and feeling sorry for myself, I'm talking, thinking, and acting as if I'm not part of God's family and God's kingdom. Peter says when, when, when you begin to act a certain way, it's because you've lost sight of where you used to be and what he saved you from. But see, I've learned this. If I continue to rejoice and be thankful over little things, it creates an attitude of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, you know, is not a day on the calendar. Thanksgiving is not an event. It's an attitude. And attitudes are something that we are to live in and walk in all the time. That's why he says rejoice always. Just because God says do it ought to be enough. Because I hope you've realized by now he knows better than we do. If you haven't learned that, then you're really operating by the rules of this kingdom. All right. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And this is what I want to get to. In everything, not for everything, in everything, give thanks. Say, even in this situation that just happened this week, the Bible says in every, there's something in here to give thanks for. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. There are people out there, God, I want to know, what's his will? What's your will? Here it is. It's written down there. And I have this sneaking suspicion that if we just do what he says, we'll get the answers to the other questions also. God, what's your will for my life? In everything, give thanks. God, I need to know direction for my life. I need to know you. In everything, give thanks. God, I don't know what I'm doing. Everything's not going. In everything, give thanks. And you start beginning to do that. What happens is you open yourself up to him. You get your eyes off of all the things that are wrong and aren't working. Because you know when you're looking at the things that aren't working, guess which direction you're looking in? Down. My Bible says when you're in trouble, look up where your help comes from. So when you're giving thanks, you're looking up. And while you're looking up, he can begin to speak into your life the other things that you need. These principles are God-ordained and they work. On the other hand, these are God-ordained principles that are perverted and they work also. Because the anointing's there to work, it's just that they're being plugged in backwards. All right. James chapter 1. We looked at this. This is where we ended last week. But I want to look there because it's so important. Verse, let's go to verse um, 
2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. We talked about the fact that it requires us to count it. When good things are happening to you and everything's going well and, you know, your favorite team's winning and everything's, you know, there's money in the back, the, the dog likes you, your wife loves you, and everything's going well, you don't have to count that joy. You're just feeling joyful. It's when things are not going your way, when everything seems to be going against you, that's when you don't feel joyful, so you have to count it joyful. This is one of the principles of the kingdom of God. When you fall into various trials, count it all joy, my brethren. And now, as I said last week, God wouldn't have to tell you why. You know, you're not entitled to an explanation from God. He's God. He's God. He's God. In fact, it was the explanation that got the first couple in trouble. He's God. Therefore, he has a right to say, do this, don't do this, and my only option is to obey him or disobey him. But here, he does tell us why, what the benefit is. Count it all joy, my brother, when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces patience. That word means steadfastness. And we talked at the end last time in this kingdom, that when we count it all joy, that enables us to stand still long enough because he says that, 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 patient, that, that joy will allow you to be steadfast, not moved about by everything that's going on. Why? Because you're deciding, you have the authority in your life to decide I'm going to stand still no matter what the chaos. Just because there's people panicking around you doesn't mean you have to. Just because everybody else is running around like a chicken with their head cut off doesn't mean you have to. Just because everybody's panicked. In that courtroom scene I told you about several weeks ago, everybody around me was panicked and my brain started panicking, but I've learned to listen inside and I pulled aside so that I wouldn't panic and began to listen for God's instructions on the inside. And notice what he says, the trying of your faith produces steadfastness. And if you'll stay steadfastness, it will have its perfect work in you. See, God wants to work in us, but when, things, when we're reacting to everything that's going on around us, which is what the rules over here have us do, we're reacting to everything around us, we're not standing still long enough for God to do His work. It's like certain recipes, like uh, um, souffles and things like that. You put the ingredients in it, you put it in the oven, but then you've got to let it work. Some bread, you've got to let it rise. And I'm not a baker, but if you do things to it too soon, pfft, it won't, the yeast or whatever you put in there won't have its perfect work. And God, the Bible says, is at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. But when we're panicked, running around, complaining, feeling sorry for ourselves, that we're entitled to feel because we're just human, what we're doing is we're unplugging the power cord from the source of power in our lives that wants to complete His work in you. This is what these scriptures are teaching us. All right, we're going to move on to the next one. 
Turn with me to John chapter 20. So the first principle is to reach the top, you've got to climb over others. Success means getting to the top. God's principle is the top is at the bottom. It's serving. Second principle was growing up means becoming more sophisticated, impressing others by how we look and what we do. In God's kingdom, maturity means to be childlike, humble, no pretense. The world's kingdom, principle of the kid's kingdom is that in bad times, you have a right to complain and feel sorry for yourself. And the kingdom of God is in everything, give thanks. Next principle, John chapter 20. This is after Jesus has been crucified, raised from the dead. The disciples are all gathered together and, and Jesus has appeared to some of them. And now we're going to see that when he appeared to them, Thomas, one of the disciples, was not present. We'll pick up in verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, some translations are Didymus, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So they, they have, he has their word, he's risen. We've seen the Lord. So Thomas has heard their words. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He doesn't say I cannot. He said I will not believe. Unless he has their word that he's alive, he has their word, he's been risen from the dead, he has their word, they've seen him. Jesus had told them this was going to happen. Now the encouraging thing to me is, this is one of his disciples. Not the 20, one of the 12, the inner circle. And what he's saying to them is, I, I heard what you say, but unless I can see him, Unless I can touch him, feel him, put my finger in the nail holes and my hand in the hole left by that spear in his side, I will not believe. And that's one of the cardinal principles of the kingdom of the world that we've been indoctrinated. Seeing is believing. I, I, I can't believe that. Unless I see that, I can't believe that. So, oh, no, 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 Pastor. I've been in church long. I know that's not true. Yeah, but we operate by it all the time. Now, when it comes to the things of the world, you need to operate by it. When you drive home today, you better operate by seeing is believing. Especially when you pull your car out onto 195 and there's an 18-wheeler bearing down on you. You better go with what you see. But when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the things of God and what God has said, we've been indoctrinated to have to have it proved to us through our senses. So, Pastor, I know I, I don't do that. Well, do you? What happens when 
when you ask, when you pray for a healing in your body, do you start checking your body to see if the symptoms are there? What happens when you stand for healing and your body still hurts? And the word of God says, Jesus bore your sicknesses and carried your diseases. And you're, but, you're, but your body still hurts. Your mind's got to decide which one of these you're going to believe. Because it's a, believing is an act of your will. Remember what Thomas said? He didn't say, I'm having trouble believing. He said, I will not believe. When God created man and put him in the garden and said he made him in his image, and whether that means God has you know, ears and hands, I don't know. What I do know it means is God, the only thing God created, the only being that God created, the only thing that God created, that he gave them a free will. And that's the part of them, or at least part of it, that makes them like God. And God cannot and God will not violate your will because he doesn't take back something he gave you. Oh, he'll influence it and he'll work on it, but he can't control your will and Satan can't control your will. The only one who can control your will is you. Next year on Wednesday nights, I'm going to start teaching on a course on renewing the minds I've taught in School of Ministry. And what you find in that course is everything that's going on in your mind is aimed at your will. Your will is what everything is all about from God's side and from the enemy's side. They're after your will. God is wooing it. Satan tries to push it or tempt it. And so what I, I want you to understand that because that's the, the decision of whether or not you're going to walk by what you see or the other principle we're going to hear in just a minute ago is an act of your will. Otherwise, God could not hold us responsible justly for, for whether we believe in Jesus or not. In order to be a just God, He has to require something of us that we're capable of doing. Otherwise, He's not a just God. And so when He says, believe something, that means we have, to, we have the ability to do it. It's an act of your will. And so when Thomas says, unless I, unless I can see, I will not believe, that's the principle that the kingdom of God operates on, the kingdom of the world operates under. And we've been indoctrinated by that. And those of you that are trying to grow in faith, that's the one you're trying to overcome. Because while you're standing on the word of God, all of the memories, all of the years of, of, of practicing and thinking the other way are still trying to work in your brain. But, 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 I don't, but, but I don't see this. Yeah, I know the word of God says Jesus on the cross, Jesus bore our sickness and carried him. But I know somebody that believed that and died. That's your senses and that's your reasoning measuring against God's word. What's that got to do with God's word? And you have to make a choice which one you're going to believe. So the kingdom of, God, kingdom of the world operates on this principle, unless I see, I will not believe. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, Paul is writing to a, the church at Corinth. Corinth was located in the lower part 
of Greece called Achaia. And the Greeks in this area, especially because Athens was in that area, Corinth was in that area, this was the source of philo world philosophy. Most world philosophies somewhere has its roots in this area and back in this time. Plato, Aristotle, and all of this is the, and I know this because as a in college, I majored in philosophy. I wasn't saved. I majored in philosophy because I, I wanted to understand how to live my life, and I figured I'd study how great men had come to their own conclusions about that. And after two years of intense study, I came to the conclusion they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> they would contradict each other, and they can't both be right. And of course, once I got saved and got into my Bible, I discovered, and this is what we're going to look at right now, is, is it's the best man can do apart from God. It's man trying to understand something he can't create or control that's outside of himself. And Paul is writing this letter to a church or churches in the area of Corinth that is steeped in the philosophy of the world. And there are Jews living there. And these Christians are struggling with all of this philosophy and what to do. Because a lot of times we take some of these verses without understanding that background, we miss what he's really talking about here. Let's pick up in, um, in verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God... So what he's dealing here with here is there's two groups that are influencing these Christians. On the one hand, you have the, the philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the other philosophers that's trying to creep into the church. They still are today. Those philosophies are still out there today. On the other hand, you had Jews that had been converted, and they were crying out for something else. And this is what we're going to look at. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has, God, has not God made the wisdom of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. Now you could substitute for wisdom philosophy, uh, whatever, all those all kinds of things out there. And what he's saying is God did not choose to reveal himself through man's best efforts to understand him. Because that's really what the focus of philosophy is. There are other aspects to it. God did not choose through man's best wisdom to reveal himself. Instead, God chose a method which to the world's thinkers is foolishness, which is the cross. Because we went and looked at a few verses earlier, he makes that clear. So God's chosen a way to reveal himself and his plan of redemption through a means that in the world's thinking and philosophy of the world, the best, most educated, trained thinkers of the world, to them, it's foolishness. And that's what way God chose to do it. All right. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now remember that. For the Jews request or look for a sign and the Greeks 
Seek after wisdom. In order to do what? In order to believe in God, the Jews are looking for some sign. Now, what is a sign? A sign is some outward evidence that becomes clear to our senses that God's real. Jesus performed signs and miracles and wonders. And one of their purposes, and that's not the only purpose, was to demonstrate them. He is the Son of God, and, and this is the nature of God. God cares about you. He wants to heal you. He wants to deliver you and set you free. It was a sign. It was an indication. It was something that they could see with their eyes. And the Jews are looking for that sign. In other words, they won't believe unless they see something. That's what we're talking about. The Greeks, on the other hand, they don't need to see they want wisdom. They want you to explain it to them. They, it has to fit into their, their, their system of reasonings and understandings. Because if it doesn't fit into their understanding, they reject it. So the Jews have to see something in order to believe. The Greeks have to be able to understand it in order to receive. And that's the doctrine of the world. That's what we've been indoctrinated with. Is we have to understand it, analyze it, figure it out. Or see some powerful demonstration of it. And Paul is saying, God chose to do it a different way. God chose to bring salvation through a message that you chose to believe without seeing or without understanding. See, when we're witnessing to people, and this is, I'm guilty of this maybe more than anybody because of my background. We try to explain this to people. And when you are explaining it to them, you're appealing to their mind. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that what we saw that Satan tried to do in the garden? Isn't that what he came into the garden, how he tried to pull her out of these principles by getting her to reason this out and understand everything with her mind? Now, we're talking about the things of God now. I mean, you know, you, you, if you want to understand how your toaster works, that's great. But we're talking about God's revealing himself. Jesus, I mean, Paul saying that, because that, 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 the, the Jews, they'll believe, but they got to have a sign. they got to see something. So they'll believe if they see it. The Greeks, they'll believe if they can understand it. God didn't choose either of those methods. He chose it through a method that to the Greek Jews is weak. And to the Greeks is foolishness. It's simply the message of the cross which you either believe or you don't believe. Because that's the method God chose.
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's talk about the principle of the kingdom of God, that that's a perversion of her. So the principle of the world is that I will only believe if I can see it. If you can prove it to me, then I'll believe it. The doctrine of the Bible, the, the, the doctrine of salvation, is that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. Hebrews eleven one says tells us what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not the evidence of things not. The evidence of things not seen. The world says, I can only believe it. I will only believe it. Not I can. I will only believe it if I see it. God says, His kingdom works. The only way you're going to see it is if, first of all, you believe it. See, it's upside one. That's upside down from this. But because we're so indoctrinated with seeing is believing, that seems like some hocus pocus to us when we first got saved. Yeah, I, I know that's what we're supposed to do. But reality is, you got, you got to see it in order to believe it. No, that's a perversion of the principle of the kingdom of God. Because the principle of the kingdom of God is that, is that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Go with me to Romans chapter 4. Paul spells this out. Now, what he's just finished doing is in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, basically telling us who qualifies to get saved. All of us. And the qualification to get saved is that you've sinned. See, this goes back to that other principle about, you know, you can't enter the kingdom of God if you're sophisticated. I don't mean if you dress nicely, but, but if you, unless you become like a child, because a child just, a small child, they don't hide things from you very well. Chocolate hanging out here. <laughs> you know, cookie crumbs all over their hands. Junior, were you in the cookie jar? No. <laughs> They're not sophisticated enough. They just came as they were. And you and I all came with chocolate in our mouth and cookie crumbs all over our hands. And, and it was when you finally came to him and says, I'm a mess. That's what chapters 1 and 2 and 3 say. The qualification to receive salvation is that you need it. And you admit you need it. And then he goes on to say it's received by faith that God's given salvation through Christ. And that's the only way it's received. That's in chapter 3. Chapter 4 now gives us an explanation of what faith is. 
so that we know how to receive it. And he begins by talking about Father Abraham and the faith of Abraham, which is the foundation for the Jewish nation in their covenant with God. And the story, of course, refers to the story of Abraham and Isaac because, and we've talked about this on Wednesday nights, that God called Abraham, a man who grew up in a, town, in a city that worshipped the moon. And God spoke to him and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you and of the ones that come out of your loins, out of your, you and your wife's children. And Abraham says, well, uh, sir, we got a little problem here. Uh, we don't have any. And, and the other part of the problem is we're too old. We're past childbearing age. And even beyond that, she's always been barren. So a uh, great idea. See, that's over here. Great idea. Appreciate the sentiment, but it's really not going to work. And if that's really what you want, uh, this is a condensed version, uh, we'll have to find some other way to do it. And they come up with another way to do it with his wife's servant, Hagar. So they find out what God wants, and then they're going to produce it themselves. But you see, that's not what God wants. He wants it by faith only. And after they go through all this process, after 25 years, she does conceive, and Isaac is born. And that's the believing that Paul is talking about here. Remember what we're talking about now. The principle of the kingdom of the world is that seeing is believing. I cannot believe, I will not believe unless I see or have my senses satisfied or my mind satisfied. The kingdom of God that that's a perversion of is just the opposite of that. Let's go, in, let's go down to verse... Um, well, actually, verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise may be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham. So Abraham's faith is going to be the foundation and also a model of the faith of the church by which we come into the kingdom of God. Verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. That's the promise God made. See, faith always has to go back to, all right, faith in what? Faith in something God said. In our first example, the disciples told Thomas, we, they said, we have seen the Lord. He chose not to believe them until he saw proof that what they said was true. That's what we often do with God. God said to Abraham, a father of many nations, have I made you? Genesis 17. Not will I make you before any child was born while he was too old, she's too old, and she's still barren. God said, see, I have made you. Well, if he looked around with his natural eyes, he didn't have anything to see and no hope to base that seeing on. But God said, see, here's the kingdom's principles. God said, in this kingdom, he's it. His word goes. And since this was all created by his word, that shouldn't be too hard to understand. God said, that settles it in this kingdom. In this kingdom, yeah, I know God said it. Isn't this what Eve ended up doing? I know God said it, but 
Let's reason about it. Let's think it out. Let's analyze this. That's how that principle got turned upside down over here. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed. So in God's sight, in God's eyes, as far as God was concerned, talking to Abraham, I have made you already a father, not of a child, of many nations. In the sight of him whom we believe, even God. And here's why Abraham could believe God. In the sight of even God, who calls things into being who, 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 who do, that do not exist. Well, I got uh, tangled. I know this backwards and forwards, but I know it in the New American Standard. In the sight of him whom we believe, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they do exist. This is why Abraham came to the place of believing when he couldn't see. Because he came to know the one who said it. And the one who said it can raise the dead with his words. We know that because Jesus did. Take something that no longer has life and just by speaking words, life comes back. But why would we think he couldn't do that when this same God at one point spoke out over nothing and it came into being? He came to know that this God that gave him his word, what that word was like. The God who gave him his word in this kingdom can raise the dead. And he had a dead body and his wife had a dead womb. Well, Galatians talks about that. But beyond that, this God who's the God of this kingdom can call things into exist call. Not go to Lowe's or Home Depot or somewhere. Call them out of nothing into existence as he did an entire realm of existence. And the question is, in this kingdom, can I trust that word? That's the, that's the analysis that goes on here. In, now look at this one we'll get to. Verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope, the New American Standard says, in hope against hope. So against all natural hope, in hope, this is Abraham, look what he did. He believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to that was spoken to him. So here we, here's what this is all about. This kingdom over here says, I will only believe it if I can see it. The kingdom of God, of which that's a perversion, the kingdom of God says, I've got to believe it in order to see it. 
That's the foundation kingdom. That's the principle that, that, that this kingdom operated on. God is a God of faith. You and I are living proof of that. <laughs> we are all faith projects to Him. He talks to us by faith. Because I don't know about you, I'm not there yet. <laughs> and neither are you. In this kingdom, you have to believe it first. Why? Why do we believe it first? Because God said it. So in this kingdom, His word rules. Just because He's like my mother said, you do it just because I say so. The difference is, He's got the power to make that happen. And He acts consistently with what He said. My mother didn't always do that. And you don't either. So in this kingdom, God's word is it. And I can believe something because he said so even when I haven't seen it yet. That's the principle in this kingdom. Satan wants to separate us from God and one of the methods he uses is doubt. Isn't that what he tried to he brought into the garden? Has God said. He's trying to separate them from God's word. They knew what God said. And he's trying to create doubt about whether they could trust what God said. And then when she opened the door to that doubt, he began to bring in more doubt by saying, you can't trust God's motive. He's trying to keep something from you. And then when she continued to open the door to that, he finally got so bold as to say, God lied to you. Oh, where's where she is now? She's now over, beginning to operate in the perversion of that principle. Now she has to see. And isn't that what happens? She goes and looks at the fruit and she says, it is good, it is pleasant to see. Isn't that what happened? She's, she's moved now by what she sees more than what God said. And it says to us in James chapter 1 a little further that that same principle works in us. It says that we are enticed away by our own desires. And when those desires conceive, they bring forth sin. And when sin is completed, it brings forth death. All based on ruled by what I see and what I feel, and what I sense, instead of being ruled by what God <coughs> said. He believed what God said in order that he might become what God said he would become. The believing in this kingdom has to come first. It makes perfect sense because in this kingdom, he rules and his word rules. So I believe something just because he says it. In this kingdom, I'm God, or at least I think I am. So what rules is my understanding. So I take what God says and I run it through my computer, my understanding. And if it fits in with my understanding, then I'll believe. And that's where many of us are. 
So we're trying to operate in the blessings and provisions of that kingdom that we belong to with the thinking process of this kingdom, which is totally against it. Because what's at stake here is who's ruling. Because I can take God's word, and many of us have done it, and I use God's word for my purposes. So I pull out scriptures that are what I want, leaving the ones I, I don't want. As if I've got a right to pick and choose between the truth and, and what's not going to be truth. And so I'm trying to operate by God. Because remember, when you're saved, you belong in that kingdom. But we're still thinking wise, operating under the rules that we were raised in and steeped in of this kingdom, especially in this area of belief. So yeah, I know God's word says it, but I've got to understand it first. This has been my struggle. I've got to see something first, like the Jews, like the Jews. Or I've got to understand, and if I understand it enough, or if I see miracles enough, then I'll choose to believe. But then my reason for believing is the wrong reason. The only reason that works in this kingdom is because God said so. That's it. That's what it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. World without end. It's the principle of the kingdom of God. One of the principles is God said it, that settles it. I believe it. Whether I see it or don't see it. However, because God said it, when I believe it, I will see it. Now you can have an understanding of what's behind Mark 11:23 23 and 1124. 24. Jesus on his way back in Jerusalem out in Jerusalem, passed a, a, a fig tree, went to see if there was figs on it. There weren't, and he just said, may no man eat of you anymore. The next day they're passing by, and the tree shriveled up from the roots over. I mean, it is dead, dead. And the disciples are passing by, and Peter stopped and said, well, Master, look at this, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered and died. See, Jesus walked in all the principles of this kingdom. Peter's still renewing his mind. So he's from this kingdom looking over there, saying, my, my goodness, It worked. The tree obeyed you. And Jesus stops to use this as a teaching opportunity. He said, Verily I say unto you, have faith in God. Literally it means in Greek, have the faith of God. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, whatever it was, be thou taken up and cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24 says, Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, do what? Believe. When do you believe? When you prayed. Which is asking. When do you believe? When you asked. Believe that you have received it and then you shall have it. So the believing has to come before the shall having. And the reason I can believe when I ask is because I have the confidence in the one I've asked because he rules in this kingdom. And it fits in with 1 John chapter 5, 14, which says, it says, this is the confidence that we have before God. That if we ask anything that's in accordance with His will, He hears us. And this is, this is His character that John knew. And we know this, that if He hears us, we have. I know what He's like. I know that if I ask anything in accordance with His will, well, what's His will? Read the Bible, it'll tell you what His will is. Anything in accordance with His will, He hears me. And this is what I know about Him. If He hears me, I have it. 
whether I see it yet or not. The more I get into this, and we're going to end here, the more I realize what happens is we've been saved. We've been brought into this kingdom. But we're still thinking and operating by the rules of this kingdom and wondering why it's not working. And the more I get into this, the more I see how steeped we are, how embedded these principles of the world are in us. But the good news is that the power of this word is so far much greater than the power of those principles because they're not true and these are true. And this is why next year on Wednesday nights we're going to begin to learn how to renew our mind to learn to think this way and no longer that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your wonderful grace and mercy in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your word says that though we're not saved by our understanding and we're not saved by wisdom, we're saved by believing you. Your word tells us that once we have received Christ, there is a wisdom that you do give us. There is an understanding that you do give us. We believe, Father, that you're giving us that understanding right now. And we thank you for it, Father. Father, I pray this morning that for everyone that's been here and heard this message, that the spirit of the living God who dwells in them will take this message and in the practical life situations, you'll begin to open our understanding to see how we're operating under the world's principles and remind us that we need to operate under the principles of your kingdom. We thank you for the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.